you have to have that can-do attitude of I can do anything I want to do. And I'm willing to make the time commitment and put in the effort to learn this material. And that's my take-home lesson to anyone listening to this podcast is do what you want to do. Shoot for the stars. The sky's the limit. You're only limited by your imagination. the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas. This is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. I was introduced to Carrie Sapalo while he was visiting teachers on our campus, specifically Laura Hospital. His scientifically-minded perspective caught my attention right away, and his experiences provide great insight into educating children who are blind. Hello, my name is uh, Carrie Sapalo, and I'm originally from the Chicago, Illinois area, and uh, I... I've always been interested in science and chemistry in particular. I have a PhD in chemistry from Penn State University in University Park, Pennsylvania. Graduated from there in 2010. And uh, I spent several years as a chemistry professor uh, at a university in the Midwest. And then I had a couple of research appointments at a couple of other universities. And I now for the last five years, have been working as a research developer at the Educational Testing Service. Carrie, you said that um, I know that you have uh, know some folks here on our campus at TSBBI, and yes. particularly uh, I know you enjoy spending time with some of our math and science teachers. So how did you just become interested in science? I was always told as a child that I asked really good questions. I mean, I, I had that messaging when I was as young as in first and second grade. You know, I'd want to know why um, water tasted the way that it did or uh, what would it be like if, if um, you lived in the dark as opposed to in the light and things of that sort. And then when I got a little older, um, I think around fourth, fifth grade time frame, uh, I was a child, you know, and I watched a lot of cartoons and such growing up. And there used to be these short 30-second educational pieces in place of a commercial. And I believe they were titled, Have You Ever Wondered? And then it would talk about some interesting phenomenon in the world. And one of the points I remember specifically was why the River, river Nile runs um, – opposite the direction you'd think it would be. I think it goes, it flows north instead of south. That's what I think I remember that now. And, you know, asking questions about how do you think ancient Egyptians built the pyramids? And, you know, just anything like that. And it got me thinking, well, why are these things the way that they are? And now I didn't know the answers. I'm going to give you some ancillary explanation, but it got me wanting to know more. And when I got into middle school... Uh, that's when I started getting science education on a daily, school daily routine. Up until then, uh, in the K-5 years, 
science lessons might have happened maybe once a week, if that, and so it was very underrepresented in, in the in the K five years. But um, you know, I started studying life science and then physical science, and and then of course getting into high school and studying biology, chemistry, and physics, uh, and that uh, wrapped in with all of the math necessary from algebra on up to calculus and everything in between. And it got me seeing that there's this greater puzzle that everything seemed to be connected in one way or another. And uh, I wanted to get a better understanding of why things were the way they were and what the relationships were and trying to understand the world better. And I thought the more people know, the better off you're going to be. I had a, a bus driver in high school. She taught me this lesson. She says, Carrie, people can take everything away from you in life, but the one thing they can't take away from you is your education. Hmm. So what better thing to invest in than your education? Um, So as a a student who was blind, did you have any difficulty in school accessing the educational materials, or did you find that you were getting a lot of the help that you needed? In high school, materials, textbooks and Braille, audio versions of books, um, audio recordings, I could get relatively easily and on time most of the time. The Braille with the tactile graphics was much more of a challenge. Um, I remember freshman year in high school, I was taking the honors geometry class, and I didn't get part one of my textbook until around the Thanksgiving holiday. Oh, jeez. And, and so what happened, I was asked to sit in class and get whatever you can, which was not a whole lot, but I sat in class and talked to my classmates a little about what was going on, but side, angle, side, and those sorts of theorems and principles just weren't making a lot of sense to me. And so once the textbook started showing up in mid-November, there was an IEP meeting and it was decided that they would provide me a tutor, which happened to be a substitute math teacher from high school. And she would meet with me for one or two hours every evening of the week. And the goal was for me to be ready to take my final exam at the same time as everyone else, which was just around the Martin Luther King holiday timeframe. So I, in essence, had to take the whole course in less than two months. And this also meant that I was having school lessons over the Thanksgiving holiday and, yes, over the Christmas holiday. Mm -hmm. And the teacher would come to my home. So we would meet in our home family room. And I don't know how high schoolers like teachers coming over to teach them in their homes. But (laughs) if anyone ever knew that's the way I was having to do it, it would probably be a very unpopular uh, uh, thing for people to know. And, but I got through it and I did take the exam on time. And, uh, you know, so it was quite a intellectual challenge that I undertook to get there. And then of course the rest of the school year, the second half of the course, um, the geometry book was, was there and I was able to work through it and participate in group discussions in class and work on group assignments and things. And, it was good, but the geometry textbook was the hardest one. Mm-hmm. Um, the algebra textbooks and the and the pre-calculus books and such, those 
um, seemed to be there more or less on time. It was only the geometry textbook that was the challenge. You know, I think that's something that people often forget about accessibility is that it's not just access to the materials, but also at the same time as your peers. <laughs> that's one of the the biggest challenges. Yeah. But how would you define accessibility um, yourself and and maybe reasons why you think it's important? Well, accessibility, as we all know, has multiple meanings. And uh, the one common meaning I've seen used quite often is accessible means available. And of course, that's not the context with which you and I use the term. We use the term accessible to mean uh, able to have a, a comparable interaction with the materials as, as my quote-unquote non-disabled counterparts. And whether that means through braille representation, tactographic, audio form, a combination of all of the above, or the proverbial something else. Maybe it's a 3D model. Maybe it's a physical manipulative that was made from a textbook publisher or a teacher. It just sort of depends. And it actually could even be an experience. So say a teacher does a science demonstration as part of a lecture. And giving me the opportunity to actually touch some of the equipment that's being used in the demonstration um, to help me visualize what's happening is a form of making the content accessible. And, <clears throat> you know, that's very easy to do in a physics presentation because, you know, you use inclined planes, pendulums, and, you know, carts on tracks and things. And you can imagine any number of different things you can do with those sorts of things. And so being involved in not only the the textbook aspects, but also in the, the visual presentations as part of a class, I think, can be helpful if it's done tastefully and appropriately in um, as part of a, a presentation. Now, I wouldn't suggest that teachers call out the student with a disability, all right, now you can come on up here and check this stuff out before I do the demonstration for the rest of the class. You know, It should be done <clears throat> as part of the lesson and you know, maybe the, the student with disability plays a, uh, an assistant role or something. I'm not sure. And maybe the teacher involves other students as well mm -hmm. as part of demonstration. So it's not, you're not sticking out like a sore thumb. So uh, Carrie, what are the greatest barriers for blind students when it comes to uh, accessing or being, or taking STEM courses in K-12 and even in college? The biggest challenge I see are actually relating to how teachers present the content. Mm. We're so dependent upon the visual image to communicate meaning. Uh, this is very apparent in math classes where you'll hear the teacher often say, take this times this equals that, see? Mm -hmm. And I used to and I don't recommend this, I used to audio record my lectures in middle school. Mm -hmm. And so I have cassette tapes of these old recordings and that is in there frequently. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it, it's, it's evidence that shows why I was having difficulty. And, and often I found just going home and working with my dad in the evenings and doing problems out of the textbook and me writing it out on a Perkins Braille writer, that's how I really learned I. I didn't get a whole lot out of class. And, and that's a big challenge even today with 
the college environment is, is you know, I can sit there and I can get definitions and basic concepts, but if the instructor isn't able to non-ambiguously communicate the visual aspects of the mathematical expressions being manipulated, it, it really can be a barrier. And the teacher's not intending to make this barrier, it's just a side effect of the way that they've been taught and the way that they've experienced their learning. And getting a teacher to, quote-unquote, unlearn what they have learned, to do it, do the teaching in a more inclusive way, is quite a mountain to climb. And, And it's not impossible, and... It's, it's certainly a, a doable challenge, but it really requires the students with the disabilities and the families of the child with a disability really need to be the proponents of these, these more um, inclusive teaching methodologies. And all you can really do, in my opinion, is ask the teachers to be mindful of these things and to try to make an attempt at non-ambiguous communication yeah. But, I mean, they're, no one's perfect, and, and, and that's okay, but uh, as long as there's some effort. So <clears throat> Dr. Abraham Nemeth, when he was alive, he published a paper back in the mid-1990s called Math Speak. <laughs> and it is a series of conventions he devised so that a human reader could, could describe any mathematical expression non-ambiguously. And some researchers in recent years have tried offering professional development training for math teachers to learn some of these principles and then to start using these conventions as part of their lecture style. And they found that not only was the non-ambiguous verbal communication helpful to vision-impaired children, but it was helpful to sighted kids too. Mm -hmm. Because when children think they see what they see on the board that's one thing, but then when it's reinforced by the verbal aspects, then it sort of serves as a confirmation. Yes, I have it now. That is indeed what I'm interpreting it to be. And if we could just get more teachers to want to to make that quote-unquote best practice, I think that would be a really big help. So Carrie, if a blind student had an aptitude for STEM, uh, what advice would you give them regarding employment opportunities? Make sure that you are comfortable with actual physical manipulations of laboratory equipment in that type of environment. Um, Also, to be comfortable communicating in both a two-dimensional and three-dimensional context and not simply relying on your ability to describe Cartesian graphs as an example in words because sighted people really like visual imagery. Mm-hmm. And whether you accomplish that goal through uh, a raised line drawing tool, where you actually sketch something freehand for a group of people, or you work with a sighted assistant in advance to make the flow charts and the diagrams and other visual information in the form that you intend it to be so that you can then describe it visually uh, to your audience, whether it be a dissertation committee, 
a team, in the workplace, whatever it happens to be, or you're presenting a paper at a professional conference, and you have to be comfortable with not only presenting the, the visual information, but also comprehending it and consuming it. And a lot of children with vision impairments, they have difficulty with that skill. And I know it's partially dependent upon the TVI that they, they work with as they grow up and their comfort zone or their, you know, their comfort level with communicating the, uh, the visual information to the blind child in the first place. Uh, but that, I think, is really, really important. And also to be able to use analogies. Uh, I think using metaphorical analogies to f- communicate additional visual information, I think, is a, a fine thing for a student to be able to do. I mean, I, I think of the, the metaphor, you really hit that, the ball out of the ballpark with that one. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you, and I get this visual image of a baseball player hitting a home run. Okay. And that illustration could be used as part of a physics uh, concept in a, in a high school or college class about the arc and the trajectory of the ball as it goes up and goes out of the, the stadium. If it's a straight line versus a f- high fly ball in a baseball game, what's the difference between a line drive and a fly ball? Well, Anyone knows that can see that a line drive is a ball that's hit very hard and exits the stadium very quickly, whereas a fly ball, it just sort of pops off the top of the bat and just is floating out there. And maybe the wind blows it along and pushes it out of the stadium. It might not get out on its own accord. Um, <clears throat> so it just helps you visualize uh, metaphorically what's going on. And, and if teachers can use metaphors that VI children can relate to all the better. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, there's lots of metaphors where vision-impaired children can't relate to. So you have to be um, mindful of that. I mean, I mean, uh, metaphors that involve a lot of uh, explicit color usage might be problematic. I saw <clears throat> on an AP exam I was reviewing once, which chemical is blue was the question. And it was A, B, C, D. And I'm just like, I think this question should be removed from this Braille test. (laughs) (laughs) The likelihood that a vision impaired child is going to be able to answer that question is not very likely to have success at that type of thing. Whereas opposed to explaining the crystal lattice of this chemical compound, what is the significance of it? That I think is a more meaningful question if you ask me but but that wasn't what was on the AP test that I was looking at well what do you see sort of in the future of accessibility specific to science or just in general are there any like possibilities you're excited about or something you hope will be coming down the road I'm very excited about this dynamic tactile graphics display technology yeah um, I mean, the graffiti tablet from Orbit Technologies is, is a really cool first step. Um, but <clears throat> what the partnership between Humanware and the American Printing House for the Blind that was announced back over the summer at the NFB convention in July, uh, that they're on a path to develop a full screen tactile graphics refreshable Braille device. Yeah. Um, I think that. You know, that's the holy grail of technologies that I've been wanting since I was a kid. Yeah. And I really hope 
that it happens because I actually looked into it one time making refreshable braille technologies myself. And, and one of the big challenges with that engineering-wise has to do with the number of moving parts in a device that that would require. Yeah. And if any one of those pieces is, is defective, the whole thing is not um, in working order and needs to be repaired as one point. But then another limitation is all of those moving parts, they're creating friction. And friction creates heat. And oh. blind people want Braille now, and they want it fast. And so those pins are moving in various speeds very quickly, creating, creating a lot of heat um, that you have to dissipate off of the device. So you've got a cooling issue. Yeah. And then, of course, the durability heaven forbid it should fall off your table and hit the floor. Right. So, so you know, these companies are using various polymers that expand and contract and magnetic type materials and such, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if they can really master this. And I, I can't wait to see prototypes. I'm hoping in a year or so that initiative or others like it will have technology that they can show us uh, to, um, to, you know, get really excited about and provide mm-hmm. input on how we want them to work. Because having a dynamic Braille tactile graphics display where a blind child can actually interact with two-dimensional graphical information in real time, yeah, that's going to be a real game changer in how blind children have learned up to this point. Did you get to try out the graffiti at the NFB convention or put your hands on it? Oh, yes. And what did you think about the quality of uh, tactile imaging it was providing? Just, I know it was like a pile, it was like a prototype, but I'm just curious initially what you thought. It's, uh, I thought it was pretty decent. Um, it's, you know, it has a very low resolution of a 40 by 60 pin matrix. Okay. And the pins have, Four different level heights, yeah. From totally flat to fully extended, and I guess two other levels in between okay. that allow you to feel some aspects of depth. And in particular, if you looked at an image of a baseball stadium, you could see the bleachers climbing. Mm-hmm. As you went further out and towards the center, it got lower towards where the diamond was located. And I thought that was a really cool way to do it. Mm. Now. The limitation with the technology is is the ability to represent Braille is not really there. Mm-hmm. It's solely graphics-based. Yeah. And what APH and Heymanor are proposing to do is to do both. Yeah. So their dots, their pins are going to be smaller than the graffitis. Okay. And closer together, likely, so that you can get more NLS dot size spacing for Braille character mm. representation. Yeah. Well, Carrie, those were those were my only written up questions, but is there anything else you want to add? I would say to any blind student that wants to seriously become a STEM professional, mm-hmm. you have to be willing to make the time commitment to learn the material and to learn the skills 
to effectively learn the material. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> odds are it's going to take you longer to learn the material as it did with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not as smart or you're, it doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means um, the STEM content is very visual in nature and we just need to take the time to get it into a form with which we can then understand it and communicate with it. And, and a lot of blind children never get to that point for whatever reason. They either are discouraged by their TVI or because the TVI doesn't want to provide them the Braille and tactographic support that they would require, or maybe they're in a mainstream school situation and the, the science teacher says, I have no idea how I'm going to teach you. Mm-hmm. And it, it's sort of a, a, a psychological barrier that's been erected before they've even had a chance to succeed or fail. And you have to have that can-do attitude of I can do anything I want to do. And I'm willing to make the time commitment and put in the effort to learn this material, whether it be uh, using Braille, using raised line drawings, 3D models, audio recordings, large print representations. Uh, Maybe it's getting one-on-one tutoring sessions with the teacher after class or with a professional tutor outside of class or a parent or a legal guardian. You know, it's going to take more time to learn the material um, for most people. There are going to be those exceptions where the child just learns everything they hear and they never forget. But you know, <clears throat> most of us are not that way. Yeah. And, and it's okay to not be that way. It's just, are we willing to make the commitment to learn the skills, to learn the materials, to work with the people we need to work with, to learn the material, to do what must be done to be successful and to do that year in and year out through middle school, high school, college. It's, it's a lot to ask. Yeah. But if you do it, the rewards are very uh, lucrative, in my opinion. Um, I, when I was a freshman in college, uh, my chemistry professor liked to stop about halfway through each lecture, and he would take a two-minute break, and he would show us pictures of places he got traveled to all around the world, and going to professional conferences or universities, and showing us pictures of famous statues and historical places he got to visit. And he says, you know, the great thing about being a chemistry professor is you get to travel all over the world. Other people pay for it. You get to give lectures and everyone thinks you're smart. (laughs) And I said, I want people to think I'm smart and I want other people to pay for my travel all around the world. And, And to this day, I will tell you that I've been all over the world. I've given <laughs> lectures. I've visited all kinds of historical places. And a lot of people think I'm smart. <laughs> so I've done it. Carrie's thoughts on accessibility felt spot on to me. Implementing teaching strategies for students who are blind does take more time and unique skills, as Carrie shared. Access to education continues to be a work in progress. And we're grateful to organizations and individuals striving for innovative solutions. From TSBBI Outreach and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time.
This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.